Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you, Ed. Uh, I come to you in my uh, newly released 32nd edition. Uh, Happy birthday. Thank you kindly. There might be some bugs, uh, but, you know, another update (laughs) should just sort that right out. And, yeah, I had... I, I feel like I'm playing catch up still from 2021 and I realise we might be heading into awards season, but I don't know. It feels very quiet given <clears throat> everything, uh, understandably. But I did have a sort of fever dream idea about how I would change the actor categories awards if you're happy for me to spin it out and workshop it. it. Right, so... I think taking the precedent set by screenplay, we abolish gender categories and go for best original performance, best supporting original performance and best biographical performance and best supporting biographical performance. Because Mm. then I think you get something, you, you kind of, it's not to diminish the fact that doing a very good impression of someone to bring their life story to the screen, it's still, it's it's not that it's not craft, but I don't mm. feel like it should dominate in the same way that with screenplay, best adapted, you know, there's already a story there and that has been told in a different way, but it doesn't mean that original, you know, Original stories don't get a look in either. So that's my suggestion to the Academy. They can uh, have a whirl with it because you still get four people holding statuettes. Mm. And I I do wonder, like, in terms of gender, it's quite frustrating because, you you know, the only reason that I can justify having a woman category there, as in actress, is to make sure that all the boys don't guess all the time. <laughs> mm. um, but it, because it... For me, it's quite a faulty um, considerate, you know, for your consideration lever, um, because really we could talk about male identifying, female identifying. I don't know. I am a cis lady who is very considers herself very much an ally, but I'm not the person to figure it out. But I think that it would be interesting, even just for a year, to chuck out consideration of gender at all and get down to the nub of what an actor is doing. Hmm. Yeah, I think it would be interesting as well because I think one of the big complaints this week were because uh, the SAG Awards announced some of their nominations were that in the actress category there it was like four people playing real people and then Olivia Coleman in The Lost Daughter. Yeah. And that does seem to kind of like do a disservice to the people out there who are doing original character. You know, they are creating characters from whole cloth even if you know the 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 writer is making them the performance is the actor and the director working in tandem to create a character that is new that not is that is not just like 
a real person from the past that someone is doing an imp- uh, you know if it's someone who was alive in the 20th century who we kind of have a, a visual record of that you can just kind of like do impressions of their mannerisms it's a little different if you're kind of like doing someone from the far distant past and you really have a lot of leeway to just kind of like do whatever you want i guess but yeah it, it definitely feels as if a lot of awards bodies get kind of uh snowed by the by the fact that someone is playing a real person and that you know that lends a worthiness to it and is considered more important in some way than the equally technically challenging and interesting work of trying to create someone who didn't exist on screen or in the world ever before. Yep, that's how I feel. Let's just shake it up a bit, shall we? It's not like we've had enough completely changing the world of late. Mm. Mm. That's what something the, the Golden Globes should have done, other, apart from just have all of their ceremony happen on Twitter this year, <laughs> which was... A weird thing. Obviously, you're still off social media, but that was yeah, that was just like a really weird thing where they were just having a ceremony somewhere, and then they just like announced the winners in tweets, and there was such a lack of ceremony to it. There was such a lack of people caring that you just kind of wondered if they just maybe shouldn't have bothered at all. <laughs> Although it did make for a very funny moment when they announced that West Side Story had won Best Musical or Comedy where the tweet said something like they say laughter is the best medicine and then like reference West Side Story is like not a funny show <laughs> it's it's a tragedy <laughs> it's just you know obviously pointing out the stupidity of comedy or musical as a category but that was just that was so so funny to me and almost justified all of it but yeah if they they could have they could have changed up their categories and maybe got a little more attention than sort of people bored quote-tweeting them on the night. So we'll go on to the news for this week, and it's uh, just deaths. Yeah. Just deaths. Yeah. <laughs> My birthday is well and truly over. <laughs> so we had a string of uh, kind of legendary people passing away, uh, some, you know, fairly old, so maybe not unexpected, uh, and at least one, you know, somewhat young and not expected at all. Uh, first of which was uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who passed away at the age of 82. Peter Bogdanovich, uh, of course, a filmmaker and film critic, started as a film critic and then and film programmer, and then worked with Roger Corman in the 60s and, you know, kind of worked on sort of trashy B-movies that were still pretty good, like Targets, an amazing movie, before having a truly spectacular run in the 70s with movies like The Last Picture Show and Paper Moon um, and... Uh, uh, what's up doc and then you know having a somewhat spottier career in in the following years but still someone who did lots of interesting work also a very fun actor always enjoyed him showing up on the sopranos as uh melfi's psychiatrist um and also very game to make fun of himself uh he's very funny in that one episode of uh documentary now where he plays himself and he's talking about the robert evans equivalent and sort of says, you know, we made a bet that night. And he said, if I lost, I have to wear a cravat for the next 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a very, just very, very funny joke. Also, um, that one, like, blink and you'd almost miss him cameo appearance on The Good Wife, which would just mm, ended mm-hmm. me, but, you know, delightful. Yeah, but um, a wonderful filmmaker, a wonderful um, 
supporter of cinema, I guess, you know, like, because he was so interested in the history of film. He was such an expert on all these movies. When he first came to Hollywood, he befriended, like, every or elder statesman filmmaker that was just kind of, like, winding down their careers, like John Ford and Howard Hawks and Orson Welles, who he was, like, very chummy with uh, and who cast him in uh, his for a long time unfinished movie the other side of the wind um in which which was finished and released on netflix a few years ago and in which peter bogdanovich gave a really great performance yeah just like a real just a fascinating figure uh with just kind of a life you know up beside the screen at the you know including his like his relationship with civil shepherd and how that ended his relationship with his his wife polly platt which was like very important creative partnership between the two of them his relationship with dorothy stratton which ended horribly uh horrible tragedy yeah, just uh, someone who lived just an incredible life. And then Sidney Poitier passed away at the age of 94. Uh, obviously, just a titanic figure in the history of 20th century Hollywood. Uh, the first black actor to be nominated for Best Actor at the Oscars for The Defiant Ones. And then the first to win for Lilies uh, of the Field. Um, you know, one of the first black actors to become... A real box office draw i think uh, in like the late 60s i think 1967 or 68 around about then he was the biggest box office draw in america he was you know able to really break a lot of ground and really lay the the path really for a lot of people who followed he also kind of like shouldered a lot of chris from all sides obviously um why widely hated by a lot of sort of racists because of his prominence also I think criticized quite a lot by sort of black activists who saw him as sort of maybe someone who's assimilating or or you know that 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 kind of criticism aimed at him, but someone who I think like shouldered it all with tremendous grace and really made a, a huge impact on the industry and the ripples of that are still being felt now. Also, a very interesting director in his own right. I watched his his western Buck and the Breacher um, last year when it was on Criterion uh, Channel, and that was just like a really funny interesting offbeat western and yeah he was just someone who was incredibly charming as well you know if you see any interview with him he was just like such a great talker such a great storyteller and yeah just an, an incredible fun uh screen presence as well completely i think my favorite role of his is to sir with love mid mm. late 60s um and i think he kind of like no one else could represent the kind of just seething anger but also the complete temerity to hold that with grace mm. and yet you know i the picture i have of sydney poitier on screen is him just looking at someone and not talking but he doesn't mm. say a word just an absolutely phenomenal presence mm. yeah um, and also, uh, very very fun in sneakers. Oh yeah, which I watched last year, and like that whole cast is just like delightful actors having a good time. Oh but, yeah, my God. He... it's such a muck around. I had forgotten about sneakers. It's so great. Uh, and then uh, after that, uh, Bob Saget passed away at the age of sixty-five. The sort of comedian and actor and and uh, one-time director. Probably, you know, it, it, he's one of those person who had such a kind of a big career that it's kind of hard to say what people most know him for. I think for me, I knew him mainly as the voice of the dad on How I Met Your Mother. Mm. Um, for people who were aware of his his 
um, work on on Full House in the nineties. That was like a huge sitcom that was massive in America, and I don't think ever made any inroads in the UK. But you know, it was a, you know a huge cultural reference over here, and also uh, for me, I think why I will now think of him because I watched his directorial movie, uh, his directorial debut, I think, Dirty Work with Norm Macdonald two days before he died. So uh, I apologize if I jinxed him. Um, but that's a movie that I'd heard people talk about in the past as kind of like a weird, cool little object. And I watched it and I had a blast. That is a very funny, very dark comedy where Norm Macdonald and Artie Lang set up a business where they take revenge on people in order to get $50,000 to pay Chevy Chase as a doctor with gambling decks to replace Artie Lang's dad's heart, played by Jack Warden. It's a weird, weird movie, but it's very, very funny. And I think it, it really spoke to the sensibilities of both Bob Saget and Norm MacDonald, where it's people saying ab- and doing absolutely horrific things, but with a big old smile. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, people, check it out. Dirty Work. Very funny, very strange movie. Uh, and then finally, uh, Ronnie Spector passed away at the age of 78, the, the lead singer of The Renettes, one of the greatest voices in pop music, just one of the coolest people, I think, in pop music of the 60s. If you see any picture of her, she just oozes uh, a sense of kind of like mid-century cool. Uh, obviously went through some terrible things through being married to Phil Spector, um, as you know, so many people, anyone who was involved in Phil Spector seemed to have uh, some terrible stories and terrible things happened to them. But a truly legendary voice, Be My Baby, is such an eternal song. And she brings so much to it in, in her vocals. And yeah, she definitely feels like one of those people whose work will truly live forever and that everyone will be listening to that song, you know, until the heat death of the universe. <laughs> completely so we'll get on to our main topic today uh as we mentioned at the top it was your birthday this week happy birthday again <laughs> and as is tradition on the show when it's someone's birthday they get to kind of like pick the topic uh you know regardless of you know how esoteric or oddball it may be uh so emily what is your topic for this week my topic for this week is protagonists that aren't clear and this mm. came out of a discussion from longtime friend of the podcast, filmmaker Matthew Barron, who mm. recommended me what ended up being my film of 2021, She Dies Tomorrow by Amy Sumetz, mm. and how particularly in She Dies Tomorrow, though we begin with one character which would classically be defined as the protagonist. We don't necessarily follow her directly the entire way through the film. We Mm. step back a bit, we go forward a bit, and it suggests overall that something else is the protagonist of this film. And I find this a lot with films that I really resonate with, particularly ensemble films or films that generally are alternative and tend to buck trends of your gold standard industry writing techniques and structure Mm. where fundamentally you have a protagonist who wants something and you follow 
them as they're trying to get it. A very Joseph Campbell hero's journey format. But more and more, particularly I've been noticing over the past five, eight years, and not just because of the move towards franchises. Yes, I'm looking at you, the Avengers, where you have multiple agents within a script and a story who have various different kinds of powers, not necessarily superpowers, and the way that they interact with each other. And I think this is also coming a lot from the rise of TV, where you do have more space for different characters, like a white, like a, a wider cast of, of characters. But even then, with a lot of TV, your protagonist can feel generally pretty clear. Mm. Um, but She Dies Tomorrow is so interesting because you are consistently being asked to consider... I think the idea of the self and that's mm. <laughs> to quote one of the skeleton b-boys from David S. Pumpkin's SNL sketch that's part of it um, <laughs> and I, I it's just interesting because often in my um, oh, long time ago now but when I did a lot of script development work typically if you had an issue with your script it was often a weak protagonist Mm. and not being able to identify who they are. And please note, that does not mean you identify with the protagonist. You're just able to recognise who this film is about. So I suppose protagonists that aren't clear, but also maybe a bit of a pushback against the very idea of a main character. And I know I mentioned She Dies Tomorrow there, but I think my other kind of paradigm example of this is... I think you probably know it as soon as I'm about to, as as I'm about to say it. Is Magnolia? Oh, I thought you were going to say pop star. Oh, <laughs> big shout out to my wonderful friend Fiona for buying me a year of Letterboxd, so I am now a Letterboxd Pro uh, reviewer. And thanks to this, her, my newly released statistics identified that the top two films that I have watched and logged on Letterboxd is tied at six times each pop star never stop never stopping and phantom thread and <laughs> you know you can talk about scary data and micro targeting all you like but that is essentially my personality in one screenshot so there you go. <laughs> um but i would say magnolia is so striking and i think it made such an impact at the time and the thing about magnolia is that it's interesting because I, I think that was the film that really established him because you have Hard Eight, which is very clear, I would argue very clear protagonist, but mm. a subtle dynamic of a, a, a trio relationship. Then you have Boogie Nights, which of course is ensemble, but it's very clearly Dirk Diggler is your protagonist. And yet we managed to kind of flow amongst other characters and represent the community of um and and uh, the strange sort of family that was at that time in sort of 70s um porn and, and, and valleys and stuff the thing about magnolia is that like just try and name who the main character is mm. and i and i can't and I think that was what was so striking and why it made such an impact at the time because it was something truly different 
I guess you could say that like shortcuts with Altman is kind of its closest um, likeness. And I think that's mm. intentional through the casting of Julianne Moore as well. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I think, I think Magnolia really strikes me because I feel like films that don't have a clear protagonist and you can't name the main character within like 30 seconds is that really the film is putting itself on a limb by trying to say, no, the main character is like an idea or a force or a theme. And with Magnolia, it is, I think, a rejection of the main character-ness because each of those people thinks they're the main character. And yet that sort of simultaneously is the thing that they have in common, but also makes them one of a number. So and, mm. and the fact that it kind of wrestles so much with kind of ego and letting go and acts of God. Um, I think it's, again, such a fantastically crafted film that could meander and yet it is completely tight. Like there is not a skipped beat in it. Oh yeah, I've been thinking about Magnolia a lot. Um, but enough of me. Ed, what came to your mind when I suggested this hairbrain topic? The first thing that I think came to mind for me was uh, Alien. Ooh. Because when, you know, when I say that, I'm sure everyone's response is, well, what's Sigourney Wheeler? She's obviously the lead. But that, I, in my take on that is that you only know that because we know that they then made three of the movies and she, which, which she was the lead. Mm. When you watch Alien for the first time, it's really not clear who is meant to be the main character because you're being introduced to these characters all pretty much for the first time. You would watch it for a bit and you think, oh, I, you know, maybe Tom Skerritt is the, is the protagonist of, of this one because you know he's the captain of the ship. Maybe... Ian Holm is because he's got some things going on. Maybe John Hurt is as well because he's kind of like the one who goes out on the mission. And, you know, like there's lots of various people who are in the mix. You know, it's a very much an ensemble movie where the lead only becomes apparent because people start being horribly killed. <laughs> and then by the end of it, you know, it is the ultimate final girl situation where you are just left with ripley and jones and that's it you know them versus the maybe jones is the lead um <laughs> but you know like uh against the xenomorph and that to be i i always find that very interesting yeah i remember watching alien for the first time where and probably in like 2002 round about then whenever it was that the quadrilogy box set came out because i remember getting that on dvd and at that point, I had already seen Alien Resurrection uh, because that was in kind of like constant rotation on Sky Movies in like the late 90s. And I remember staying with some family friends sort of around then and watching it and not really knowing what was going on, but having a good time. Um, and so like going in thinking, oh, so this is where the story starts. This must be where you're immediately introduced to Ripley and she must be, you know, the hero who's kind of going to survive this all. And, you know, she isn't. She is kind of a important character, but she's not necessarily 
you know the the clear lead or protagonist of the movie until fairly deep into it you know and in some cases she is seen as a little bit of a she's like a little officious she's the person who doesn't want to let john hurt back into the ship because it's against regulations um like so she's not necessarily seen as a heroic figure at all she's maybe seen as like cold and unfeeling and in opposition to everyone else and i think that's one of the things that's really interesting about that movie is that it it really does make you care about everyone on that ship by not tipping its hand immediately as to who you should care about such an excellent point ed and before i expand on it because you mentioned Jones possibly being the lead, it is now the <laughs> law that I mention My Day by Jones, the superb appreciation of uh, Jones in Alien by the film critic Anne Bilson, um, ah, yeah. which begins as a sort of homage to the genius of including him in a script and then follows a... Uh, um, a, a few journal entries from the perspective of Jones through the events of the first <laughs> Alien film, which I cannot recommend enough. I adore it. I totally agree with you, Ed. And I think what's brilliant about that choice is that, as you say, we don't know who to care about. Everyone is kind of on equal footing. Mm-hmm. And we're not given any sense of a lean towards who we should care about who is stronger than anyone else and I think that emphasizes how raw and dangerous where they are is and I think it Mm. also emphasizes that they they almost become a pack of herd animals that the xenomorph is just picking off you know, it yeah. it really kind of removes any sense of character that we come to understand them as, and they are it's simply prey. Like it, it brings down to a species level, and of course Ripley then becomes the survivor, and then she becomes the protagonist. It, like further on in the franchise, but she's mm-hmm. the survivor, and I and I agree with you. Like it's really hard to think about how it was it was to see Alien when there were no other sequels. Because I think, in, in the same way that, like, it was when I first watched Alien, you know, I sort of knew what was going to happen and I was still, like, out of my wits. But wondering, like, what it was like to see that xenomorph bursting out for the first time and genuinely mm-hmm. not knowing who was going to, you know, that, that Ripley came out as the, the final girl, as you, as you mentioned, Laura Mulvey's excellent um, uh, essay about. Sort of the role of women and, and survival in, in horror and thrillers and, and like um and yeah that she comes out not victorious but just alive <laughs> mm. i think is really incredible um what else came to your mind in terms of uh protagonists that aren't clear uh it, just in us talking about it now i just realized that alien has the exact same quality and structure to it as texas chainsaw massacre which also doesn't really have a protagonist mm. in that same sense. Like, you are introduced to this group of shitheads <laughs> traveling around Texas um, and who you find, in my experience anyway, it's been a while since I've seen Texas Chains of Massacre, but I remember finding everyone so annoying and, you know, just kind of, not to the extent that 
they deserve to have a chainsaw shoved through their stomach, but still very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like they're not there's not really a sense again that they're any one of them is you know a main character of the movie until sort of the last third when everyone's dead except for the the sort of actress who survives it all whose name i forget um but yeah that that's another one i think where the 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 success of the movie is down to the fact that you you don't know who it is the first time you watch it at least you don't know who it is that you're meant to focus on so you focus on everyone so every death kind of feels impactful and then it kind of gets winnowed down and then you think okay so this this was the main character all along but it wasn't necessarily the case um initially and and also i think what's interesting there is that both are stories of survival they don't really have character arcs to speak of yeah completely it's not it's not like at the start of alien ripley was scared of big scary aliens and by the end she kills one it's like it's not like you know she overcomes anything like the 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 pure story of that movie is the kind of the the raw will to survive in a deeply inhospitable place against an implacable foe um i think that's also the case in texas chainsaw massacre like no one learns anything in texas chainsaw massacre they just make it through and i think that's kind of one of the ways in which sort of a lack of a protagonist can be really valuable to a movie is that it removes the moral imperative to make you feel like you need to to follow the kind of the trite expected paths of characters going for an experience and learning something you're right that's really refreshing because i do think hero's journey and joseph campbell that i mentioned before you know it's not the only um kind of mega myth um that humans tell stories about but it can be quite wearying if it's too close to the surface. Mm -hmm. And if there is some like great reveal about something terrible that happened to someone and uh, to to a character for them to overcome, Um, because you're right, it it ends up feeling trite. And I think there's a lack of authenticity because it is just trying to hit certain points without wanting to ascribe any further meaning or kind of individuality to it. And I think that's Mm. what can be quite refreshing about um, exactly the sort of thriller, action, survivalist genre. Uh, Because look at um, Die Hard, which has a very clear protagonist. But does he learn much? I mean, he gets a machine gun. That's changed, (laughs) right? But it's interesting that you mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because immediately as you said that, I thought, oh, yeah, Westworld. I love Westworld because I think mm. it's such a weird film. And that to me is very much a film that is more about getting across an idea. And it is um, a, a sense of hubris and desire. And mm. what would you do if you believed there were no consequences? Um, yeah. And, you know, because we follow a couple of people. Uh, you know through the park as everything starts to um go haywire but again you don't know who's gonna survive and you're not given much information about them other than what you learn in their behavior in the park and then you know how that changes and even that is not a huge amount and i think that plays into the satire of westworld as well which is you know these kind of business people these people who have a certain amount of money to spend are just very blank 
really. Um, mm. And don't have any character. And then I was also thinking about um, two films that sort of try and take a humorous spin on a great sort of group efforts to varying degrees of uh, success. Mars Attacks, mm, mm-hmm. I yeah. think, is one where it feels just really fun to have these sort of disaster vignettes and you can't really follow anyone for too long, but it's meant to be quite screwball. Um, yeah. And also Don't Look Up, Adam McKay's most recent offering. Uh, which I could go on a tangent about and I will refrain myself from doing so because I think it manages to not do a clear protagonist particularly well um, because I think it ends up trying to be only a certain kind of liberal, intelligent, loving voice that doesn't have room for nuanced compassion Um understanding like I found it quite um I found it genuinely quite unhelpful um Mm. and there's one sort of brief flicker of self-awareness in it which is the best part in the whole film for me uh and surprise surprise it's um uh given down courtesy of Chris Evans um but also in terms of like group efforts I remember watching Rogue One and a lot of people finding it really disappointing. Whereas I thought this is the first Star Wars film where I've actually had the sense that it's a war. Yeah. Because we have a unit who have a mission and there isn't a clear protagonist because really it's about hope (laughs) and um, sacrifice and laying down your life for something that is bigger than yourself and, and going, yeah, this is okay. This is what I signed up for and this is what I want to pass on. And I I have the sense that Gareth Edwards wanted to do something like that, but I think there was pushback possibly from the studio and it ended up being, again, not only protagonist, not very clear, but just generally a not particularly clear film, which is so frustrating because yeah. I think it's the most, in- it's the most interesting because it, again similar to um, The Last Skywalker, it's trying to wrench back the idea of, like, there is one special person. Like, there is an imperial bloodline. There is... um, There are only certain magic-gifted characters who can save the world. It's like, no, actually, none none of what you saw in Star Wars would have happened if these people hadn't sacrificed their lives in order to get these plans over. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I really mm. enjoyed that premise, even if I don't think the execution came through as as satisfyingly as it could have done. And then also, yeah. um, I think Richard Linklater is so big for this. Mm. Like, Sla- yeah. you know, Slacker is essentially a sort of like shared consciousness. And I remember, I think I even uh, sort of moaned about it on, on this here uh, podcast. But boyhood, I'm trying to sort of find a new level of appreciation for because I wonder if the protagonist is this kind of perspective of observation and time and and that he's more interested in the idea of a passive main character who can only do what we do, which is 
observe, really. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, still not quite all the way with it, um, because to me, Patricia Arquette is clearly um, the best. So it's difficult not to... I mean, she got her Oscar. Um, sorry, there's, that's quite a... Speaking of, of not particularly clear, that was quite a uh, meandering <laughs> selection there, Ed. So I don't know what you want to come back with. I just... Uh... It's a, before moving on to kind of like different kinds of movies, the other example I, I thought of in terms of a movie where it's oh, we only know who the protagonist is because a bunch of other movies starred them um, is The Evil Dead. Oh, yeah. Because like when you're watching that for the first time, the first movie from 1981, you know, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell, just like lifelong friends making a movie with a bunch of people they know and money they got from dentists. Um, you know, it's all... Like it's not immediate. It's not clear from when you watch the first movie that oh right, this is going to be a forty-year-long multimedia franchise, um, which Bruce Campbell is going to show up in pretty much all of them, playing Ash, um, for you know reasons that are sometimes a little bit strained. Um, but that movie, I think you know, watching it now, knowing that Bruce Campbell went on to have a very long and fruitful uh, career and that he has played Ash, like over and over again in i think it may even be playing him again next year i think there's a new evil dead movie coming out it, it it's like not immediately apparently which of those four characters is going to be the one that ends up being the you know quote-unquote survivor like he doesn't really make it to the end of the movie mm-hmm. and then you know they wreck on it in the second one to kind of explain why he's still alive um but uh, th- so that was just like another one that kind of fits into that bracket with uh, alien and um and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, the next example I had to kind of shift over to TV was uh, Band of Brothers. Yeah. Which not only is a big ensemble show with lots of you know, recognizable, well-drawn characters, but it is a show that I think very clearly shifts perspective in terms of who it's following over the course of the show. Like initially, it's very much focused on Captain Winters, played by Damian Lewis. And, you know, he is the main character. Everyone else kind of f- um, floats around him and, of, and is of various degrees of importance. But he's very much the main character for the first, I'd say, three or four episodes of the series. But then he gets uh, promoted. And so he is no longer kind of like in with the men of Easy Company in the way that he is in the other ones. So he shifts from being the main character to being supporting character. And then for the rest of the series... You know, it kind of shifts perspective. Like, there's one episode that's pretty much all from the perspective of Colin Hanks, who's kind of a new character that they introduce, uh, and suddenly, you know, as a young kind of a young man, kind of like thrown into the the gaping maw of war, is kind of trying to survive for that episode. And I think that was something that, when I watched the show for the first time, I remember not liking because I liked Captain Winter so much, and I liked the vibe the show had been following of like following these guys on their journey so for one of the characters to no longer be as central and to be off to the side um i reacted against but then like re-watching the series later suddenly realizing oh right it's the story of the men of easy company yeah it's not the story of the one man who was briefly in charge of easy company for a little bit <laughs> um, um and i think that's um, a, a, a brilliant choice and something that I think particularly when you get into the later episodes when you know they're threeing the 
concentration camp and when they're at the eagle's nest and things like that it really allows the show to take on different tones as the kind of storytelling is changing but also who the stories are about changes as well and it kind of becomes different things that's going along whilst all still you know being resolutely a high production value expensive hbo bbc miniseries about a particular event during world war ii um but um that was one i thought of sort of going into television where a show is not merely an ensemble but arguably you know deliberately chooses not to have a main character yeah for sure and i think again sort of looking at tv i'd say the wire is also very Mm. much that kind of um expansive different kind of that there might be kind of leads in different sectors of the kind of clusters of who's in the wire, but it's really hard to say that this is this is one person's story, as opposed to mm. The Sopranos, which to me is very clearly Tony's story with yeah. really well done baton handing episode to episode for other characters. But it all comes back to Tony somehow. And yeah. it was interesting in like sort of watching Sensei as well, because obviously that's, again, this kind of collective power. And, you know, the idea is that this superpower is empathy in, mm. in, a, in a kind of, you know, through the analogy of like action and, you know, almost literally switching places with someone or being there with them. And I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And, and really, as long as it's a choice, and I wonder how much of, because I feel like these stories are coming in more and more, and this kind of way of telling stories is coming in more and more, in a way that I didn't necessarily see as commonly however many years ago. I mean, I'm very open to be uh corrected and proved wrong i'm really excited to um find examples of films kind of particularly before maybe even i'd say 2010 (laughs) it doesn't even have to be that far back i mean i watched the sweet hereafter not that long ago Mm. and for the first time which is incredible and again ian home (laughs) oh Oh, yeah what a guy um and that's quite difficult to pinpoint exactly who the main character is, because I'd argue it's almost um, kind of like the knives out uh, formula where you have a detective and a fighter. And I'd say that in the suite hereafter, you have Ian Home and then you have Sarah Polly. Mm-hmm. But they still play off each other to the point where you're like, oh, no, it's is more of an idea and i wonder if we're we're just kind of getting to that point i i find it very exciting if we're getting to a point in cinema where there is an option to not only kind of have a dramatic question or themes but really use that as the core and the guiding spine through a film in in, in a way that it hasn't before because tv is is different because 
as I said before, you know, you have more time to play with. But because there's so much more at this point about how to write a screenplay, right? Like, this is how you write a good film. We can collate films that are critically and commercially successful and connect the dots. Like, we have lots of data points in terms of that now. But I just think it's really exciting that it's not that that will be overturned. It's just it, that in addition to, you know? Um, <clears throat> and I wonder if this is more common in non-Western cinema, because all of the examples that we've given so far are very much of like the Western canon. Yeah, I, I just, I think it's kind of my vibe right now. And I realise in terms of film duration, I have another theory, which is that... Um, <laughs> thinking about how tv you have much more time overall um but generally we're most comfortable uh with things lasting no longer than 90 to sort of 120 minutes because that is generally the length of one human sleep cycle mm. shoot me i know it's kind of <laughs> i know it's a bit woo um but i think there is something in us that cadence that's like it's time to wake up now like the dream needs to finish Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I wonder, I wonder how much of it is kind of, um, off the back of actually very woo things like human potential and no self and whether we've twisted ourselves up in such individualist knots that actually we kind of want to go for something collective. And I wonder how much that will come out given the pandemic. And of course we may all be um, in the same ocean, but we're very much not in the same boats um, mm, and the same, yeah. you know, and the same storm. Um, but I wonder if, you know, in in terms of representation, it actually makes more sense to have a wider sense of who who is going through this story altogether. Um, and it can be done subtly, like kind of going back to uh, David Simon mentioning The Wire, Show Me a Hero, I think very much, mm. I think the title is a provocation of who is the main character, but to me very clearly it's Oscar Isaac because he is the yeah. embodiment of and, and pushing of, of what is trying to happen. But I think it does a really amazing job and I think this is down to David Simon's like journalistic training and why his writing comes across so differently from a lot of other TV writing or just writing in general is that he really wants to find the truth and to represent mm -hmm. reality and that means giving everyone's perspective a good bit of like validation <laughs> and consideration um, so yeah I guess I'm into I'd be really interested to see more kind of journalistic style coming in which again is not saying these people say it's not raining it's raining but these people say it's not raining <laughs> yeah sorry I'm going a bit meandery now but this is what I find very exciting is that I think there seems to be a lot of of new territory that is starting to be played in hmm yeah I I do wonder if yeah if it is because there has been such a shift towards television just as, you know, like as 
the kinds of movies in America at least that get made narrows so you either have your big budget blockbusters or your micro budget indies that anyone who wants to make a movie or sorry to anyone who wants to tell a story on sort of a modest scale ends up going to you know whatever new streaming service has popped up or whatever network is willing to kind of take a chance on something that's kind of like modestly budgeted and then television itself is just more geared to ensembles historically you know like that's where you see lots of big ensemble dramas like you know like to keep it in the david simon world like you know homicide life on the street like you couldn't say that there was one single main character for that like there are characters who take on more importance at various points but there's very much not a single person who is the lead of that show or you're going further back um uh oh crap what's it called hill street blues mm. uh you know and then obviously kind of weighed by more individualistic stuff like miami vice where clearly like you have two leads and like you have a supporting cast um and then sitcoms as well like you know there's so many examples that you point to of sitcoms where you know like cheers obviously sam is the the the, the, the focal point but everyone on that show is so good and every character gets their own time that you would not necessarily say it was the sam and diane show a lot of the time yeah but yeah like television just in general is very much a a medium that allows for the kind of the growth of a rich and broad ensemble because you know it's not like a movie where people are you're bringing a cast together for to tell one story for a relatively short period of time you know theoretically it's about this one group of people are going to be together telling stories and acting together and working together for you know years at a time so obviously they all kind of have to build up um sort of depth and interest working together uh in a way that just lends itself to like you were talking about more i guess more communal storytelling absolutely and i think actually it, it just occurs to me one film that i think um has always stuck with me after i first watched it precisely because of that communal storytelling is moonrise kingdom oh yeah sure and i think wes anderson you can kind of say from that point then became very interested in telling communal stories and that was mm. his first real go at it. Because I would say that um, Darjeeling Limited and Royal Tenenbaums are family stories, whereas Moonrise Kingdom was the first time I really saw a story being told from the perspective of an entire town yeah. in a feature film format. And then sort of moving on to Grandview Best Hotel, which of course has um, our, our lobby boy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and I haven't seen the French Dispatch yet, but it, it you know, and and they're quite vignette-y, but I think he's someone who can get away with it because he manages to create characters in very punchy sentences almost. Like mm. he has such a strong sense of style that you can get a sense of who this character is within 30 seconds. Um, so it feels very rich and well populated and I would say I mean the life aquatic with Steve Suzu obviously Steve Suzu but I think that's kind of his burgeonings of interest in being like well let's think about alternative masculinity 
and, and these different mm. role models, like who can still be leaders, but can't be leaders without their community around them. Mm. Yeah, I think French Dispatch definitely falls into that category of like being very much about a community because the whole movie is sort of telling different stories from the history of this one magazine and the various writers who wrote for it, but also because all the writers are kind of writing about this same um, small town or in France, um, you're kind of seeing a history of this town. So there's stuff about like the 68 student riots and things like that, you know, so it's very much a movie that does not have a single character as the lead like you it just has a bunch of characters who are all telling their own individual stories and i really liked it for that i think that might be the thing that other people find hard to kind of pierce in terms of getting at the heart of the movie because there isn't really any one person that the movie expects you to look at and follow it's very much just kind of like you know here's a bunch of stories about this fictional town and that just kind of like celebrates the desire to go out there and like learn about the world you know that's that's that is the 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 kind of like underlying idea that drives the story more than any single person similarly uh in terms of uh stories set in france that are more driven by an idea than a single person one of the movies that i watched in preparation for this episode was uh robert bresson's la jante which is movie that I had heard about for ages and had never got around to watching despite owning it on Blu-ray. This is something, of course, would be said about about 500 other movies. Um, but uh, it's always interested me because the way it was I read about it was it's like not a story that has any central character. It's just about following this one banknote as it causes trouble. And that's partly true. As the movie goes along, it kind of settles down to focus on a single character. But essentially what the movie is, it starts with this sort of French sort of teenager who needs money from his father. His father doesn't uh, give him any money, so he goes and pawns his watch to like a friend of his, but the friend gives him a counterfeit note, so they go and spend it at a camera shop, and then the camera shop gives it to a uh, guy who's delivering something, so they give him the money he then gets in trouble for it and then things kind of like spiral on from there but for the first half an hour it's not clear if any of these characters are going to pop back into the story again because really you are just following the progress of this one bank note as it goes from person to person and then even once things settle down Bresson goes between these kind of central group of characters telling you different pieces of their story as it evolves and then in the last like 20 minutes or so it, it settles down and just follows one of them but i think it's very much a movie that is driven by the question of money as a fundamentally corrupting influence Mm. um because this one banknote ends up destroying the lives and relationships of multiple people because of the ripple effects going out of it and the movie i think communicates that idea really well um and kind of like in that sort of stark no-nonsense approach that Bresson has where you know no no cut is wasted no scene goes on a lot too long mm-hmm. it's all very kind of um straightforward and gets to the point but in a way that ends up being sort of elegiac in a way and i think that's kind of like a great 
example of a movie that takes a central idea to kind of like weave together a bunch of of initially disconnected characters without really until it has to without really placing any one any one of them at the center of that story mm. and then one more that i think we kind of have to mention because there's because it's a big one uh, pulp fiction of course a, a movie that you know doesn't doesn't really have any single character as its lead it's got a bunch of fascinating characters that it follows over the course of a short period of time and like magnolia you know all the stories kind of intersect but you couldn't necessarily say oh yeah bruce willis is the star of that movie mm. like, like the the stars of that movie are just whoever happens to be on screen at the time really for sure and you're right like it's an excellent example of really making the characters count when they are with us because mm. it also gives each of the actors the chance to really give it their all because yeah. everyone is pulling a main character performance in that film so there is mm. there are so many iconic moments and quotes because they really stick with you and yeah I, oh, you know other than of course, Mr. Pulp Fiction uh, being the uh, the lead, but um, oh, Quentin, you found <laughs> me again. <laughs> uh, so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Verse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend to the listeners this week? Well, seeming as I uh, might have mentioned that I'm off social media, I'm getting back into newsletters and mm. really enjoying... Um, Sort of longer reads about hither and thither and niche and niche things pop in but one that I've been really enjoying and again big thanks to uh, my wonderful friend Fiona for recommending it to me aforementioned of Letterbox Pro um, is the newsletter Monsters and Mullets which I think will probably appeal to our uh, listener base by A. Perry and it is a I, I'm not even sure how regularly Perry writes, but any time it comes into my inbox, I'm so delighted because there is a general sort of trend, as the title might suggest, towards kind of fantasy and 80s blockbuster. But there's such a beautiful use of personal effect and emotion and the most recent one that came uh, fresh to me today is a meditation on Cobra Kai and the Karate Kid and what we think about when we think about nostalgia. And it is by turns insightful, funny, and just a lovely thing to give a good 20 minutes of your attention to. So that is Monsters and Mullets. Cool. I am going to recommend a book that I read um, earlier this week. Uh, it's called The Night the Lights Went Out by Drew McGarry. Uh, Drew McGarry is a writer, most notably, uh, currently he's one of the co-founders and writers at Defector, um, previously worked at, uh, wrote at Deadspin and was one of the many people who quit that publication um, when several years ago it's details in the book i won't go cover all of it but basically it's a memoir in which he talks about the night in uh 2018 where he went to the deadspin um 
party. It was like a holiday party after they'd had their awards. And then he, for reasons that are still unknown, lost consciousness and smacked his head and fractured his skull and was in a medically induced coma for two weeks and woke up uh, after that time with um, brain damage and uh, having lost his uh, hearing in one of his ears, uh, his sense of smell. And it's a really entertaining book despite all that you know he is a very funny writer um there's also a very moving uh account of his experiences trying to basically learn to live with being newly disabled and having to deal with the impact that has on him as a person and on the people in his life um he also allows the people in his life to tell the story uh for a big chunk of it particularly the two weeks of it when he is in a coma where he just, you know, he interviewed all of the people who came to visit him at the hospital and his family and friends to get their sense of what they were going through and then kind of like compiles it as this very gripping oral history of the early time of his injury before uh, asserting himself again as the the main protagonist of his own story as he kind of talks about his recovery. And I think it's very, very fascinating. It's very entertaining. And uh, I had a great time. I read it over the course of sort of two days in two extended sprints. And uh, I just found it to be uh, really, yeah, just, just like a really great, really entertaining, really moving read. So that is The Night the Lights Went Out by Drew McGarry. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, Player FM, all the usual places, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow on. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 